0: Welcome everyone to our special edition BJJ podcast for the month of June. I'm Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. As many of you may know, over the past few years now for the months of June and July, we're doing podcasts to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society member meetings in 2020. So over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll be discussing the June supplements of the BJJ that includes 30 papers from the American Knee Society members meeting in 2020. For those of you who have not listened in before, we'll give you a brief overview of the society, who the members are, as well as discussing about the collaboration with the journal over the past three years, along with how we hope this is benefiting you as our listeners and readers. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the studies within the supplement have been reviewed and chosen, as well as some brief discussion on a few select papers, including the award papers. So with that in mind, firstly, I have the pleasure of being joined again by our editor-in-chief here at the journal, Professor Faraz Prof, it's great to have you back with us.
1: Andrew, thank you. Thank you for doing this.
0: Prof and I are delighted to be joined again this year by the returning guest editor for the knee supplement, Dr. Brian Springer, who is the fellowship director at Carolina Hip and Knee Center in the U.S. Brian, it's great to have you back with us. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Andrew and Ferris. It's always, always a pleasure.
0: So Brian, if I if I could sort of kick off with yourself, I know we've we've talked about this before on our previous podcasts that have accompanied the supplement, but for those who were who unaware or haven't listened to those, could you give us a brief overview of the knee Society and, and sort of how it how it has developed and came about and, and what its main roles and 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 aims are?
2: Sure, of course. And it's I always find it quite fascinating to go back and and read about the history of the knee society and where it started and 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 where it is now and you know, to think that we're approaching now almost 40 years, you know, since the, since the first meeting, which was 1983. And the first meeting actually took place at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons meeting. And it was, it was essentially a dinner and that's, you know, that's kind of what they, what they log as their first meeting. And, you know, if you think of Back to kind of the history of knee replacement really in the in the late 70s, hip replacement had already been established. In fact, the hip society had been established for about 15 years prior to the prior to the knee society. And of course, knee replacement was just going through this rapid evolution, design, surgical techniques, you know, things along those lines. And I think the leaders at that time, and it's if you if you think about who's involved in this, in this early organization of the knee society, I mean, it's it's literally the hall of fame of knee replacement. Society, it's it's Ranawat, Insall, you know, Scott, Skulko, Townley, Hungerford. I mean, it's the giants in the field from back then who had the vision and the wisdom to sit down and say, hey, we're going in a lot of different directions here. How can we, how can we put together a team that can help push the science of, of advancing the knowledge of knee replacement forward? That was really the impetus to start the knee society. And how can they create this kind of optimum environment to promote this aspect of education, research, advancing the treatment of osteoarthritis. And, and, and that was really what their mission, you know, moving forward. And I think about that small group sitting at, at the dinner table in 1983 at the academy meeting to where we are involved now, 206 members, nine countries, 30 states, 72 academic institutions. It's really, it's really pretty incredible. So the membership in the society is by an academic invitation only. Mm-hmm. So it really tries to recruit, you know, the best of the best, those that are sticking to the mission of advancing education and advancing research. And, you know, now we have new members challenging the old guard with science and research, which, which makes for really dynamic meetings. The knee society and hip society really branched out now to it's more than just a closed meeting, members only meeting that take place once a year. There's an open meeting at the academy annual meeting. There's other meetings that have come about CCJR. There's fellowships like the Insall Traveling Fellowship, you know things along those lines. So it's it's really become a very diverse organization, but still with that those dedicated core values.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, that's a great great everybody. And I think, I mean, I've, I know having spoken to your prof and, you, and yourself before, you would really say that when you go to that meeting, and you know, there's a lot of good meetings out there, but the the level of what you're listening to and and the the discussion you're having is really exceptional, isn't it?
2: it really is i mean it's, it's oftentimes in the academic year where all the research is presented first you know before a lot of the other national meetings and because it's in kind of a closed door environment let's just say no one's real worried about getting their feelings hurt you know being up on the podium or or people standing up in an audience in a in a closed meeting and telling you very frankly how they feel about the research that they're doing and that you're doing which can be good and bad but that but it really creates a an, an extremely dynamic and diverse intellectual discussion. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Robust peer review, but, uh, but informative. Yeah, absolutely. So Prof, if I, if I could come to you you next in, could you give some sort of insights into your, you know, the collaboration has been going for three years now, you know, how that sort of developed over, the, over that period of time and, and what you feel the benefits have been to the, to the readership and the journal.
1: No, so it's been, you know, it's been a wonderful relationship, Andrew. This is a very select group of intellectual, highly driven, very research-focused and education-training-focused uh, individuals. Uh, and there are some U.S., but there's a small proportion of non-U.S. Uh, and society members, so it really is an impressive cohort. So it's been great to look at the output from all those individuals, to be able to work with Brian and thought leaders like Brian to really see the shape of thinking in North America and the direction of travel. So you know we, we've begun to see trends of the really important issues, you know, selection of patients for different procedures, mm. optimization of the the pathway, and new technology, three D printing, you know, enhanced technologies like robotics. That you can see the movement in that direction. And I think one of the huge benefits for the readership is they are really seeing some insights into the direction of research in North America and uh, seeing it at a fairly early stage and being able to sort of develop and follow that direction uh, relatively quickly so it's it's really been a very very healthy relationship we'll you know we can take stock at this stage and evaluate in in future whether this has been beneficial to our readership and get feedback from our readership but i think so far it's been outstanding to deliver this to our readership and also to give this product of north american uh, orthopedics a, a much broader international readership than it would have had otherwise
0: No, I I totally agree, Prof, and and, and with that in mind, in terms of, you know, the content of the supplement, before we go on to sort of discussing the individual papers, I I think it's it's sort of, we've covered it before, but I think very important uh, for the listeners and the readers, you know, in terms of how the papers are chosen for the supplement and reviewed prior to acceptance, because it's a a fairly robust process, isn't it?
1: It is, uh, you know, it's a a process we do at PACE, and actually Mm -hmm. I have to thank and congratulate Emma Bodden and and the, the publishing team for really helping us uh, do this so efficiently and so effectively. But each paper that comes in, so there are, if you like, I'll I'll pluck a number from the air because I can't remember whether there were 80 or so papers in the meeting this autumn, but it's roughly in that range. Uh, All are invited to submit a full manuscript. And then from those those manuscripts are submitted to the journal. They come in by mid-December, at which point they will go to two uh, knee society reviewers and two BJJ non ni society reviewers. So they'll go through a pretty robust peer review process. And then we will feed back to the authors and a, a, sig- a significant number of papers were not accepted, but a load were revised and then have been shaped by the, the primary editors to the product that our readers will see. Yeah. There, there are also the three award papers. They're slightly different in the sense that they are selected uh, from a number of submissions that are international. They don't have to be presented at the meeting and they don't have to be knee society members, although frequently they are. Those are chosen by the programme committee of the NIS society. We get those a little bit later, but we still send those for peer review and try and evolve those papers uh, to make them as, as good a product as they can. So it's it's definitely a very rigorous process. These are papers by a select group of individuals presented at a meeting and then subsequently Uh, taken through a fairly strong BJJ
0: process yeah absolutely yeah to maintain that quality yeah definitely prof so if we if we can come on to the supplement because there's some interesting papers for us to talk about and uh, brian if i just come back to you before we do talk about them i I think it's always interesting for somebody particularly who's um more a bit outside the knee world you know what do you feel the the sort of core and topical themes from the papers are this year where where has the research been going
2: yeah it's a great question you know one of the things is i Look through this supplement and was going back through it. One of the things that struck me in particular about this supplement was, it's a pretty diverse range of topics. It really is. I mean, it's you know, in some years we may be heavily focused on one aspect, for example, unicompartmental knee replacement or something like that. And there's certainly that you know that flavor and some of the some of the kind of the old guard research, if you will, with unicompartmental knee replacements. I mean, we continue to talk about issues with obesity risk factors, optimizing patients. But there's a, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of diversity in, in this supplement, which I think speaks to the, the power and the diversity of the knee society in general and what people are looking at and pushing things forward. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of really encouraging data on cementless total knees. We're continuing to push forward with robotic surgeries and, and the pros and cons of that you know, and, and how is that beneficial? And there were some, you know, paper that challenges that a little bit. And yet there continues to be papers that are showing, you know, improvements in accuracy and alignment and, and potentially in, you know, patient outcomes, which is the data that we really need issues with alignment. So, you know, the continued discussion about kinematic alignment, and is that something that's going to help bend the needle and improve patient satisfaction with knee replacement. You know, we're starting to see that emerge. And I thought there's a very interesting paper that looked at alignment and potentially showed some benefits to a more of a kind of a customizable alignment. But, you know, we're also seeing, you know, I found the paper about bilateral total knee replacements and days of work missed to be a really practical study, you know, and something that I can take and have discussions with my patients on in the office right away. Yeah. You know, so, so, so very applicable research from that perspective. For example, talking about outcomes in revisions in in uh, high volume centers versus not. You know, this is an issue we wrestle with in the in the states quite a bit, where things tend to get diluted out. But now there's studies showing that, you know, if you have this done in a high volume center, revision work it can be done better. You can have better outcomes. It's probably more cost effective. You know, and I know that that tends to be more of a common theme in Europe. And I think we tend to need to move to to models along, you know, that as well. So it was really the diversity of the supplement yeah. that I think struck me the most this year.
0: No, absolutely. And just before we move on, it's interesting as well, I think, as with a lot of the, the high level journals, the, the papers, that the methodology behind them is seems to be going up and up in terms of big RCTs, multi-center RCTs, big data usage, yeah. you're just getting, the bar seems to be going higher and higher.
2: Yeah, and I, I credit BJJ with a lot of that as well, because historically, you presented a meeting at a society. It was, oh, great. I'm going to get this published. And, and BJJ has raised the bar for that over the past three years tremendously. And I think people understood and knew that hey, if we want to get this study published, we need to have rigorous methodology. We need to have our results. We need to have this very well done. And, and, and that's where I think the benefit of this partnership has been so strong.
0: Yes, that's nice to hear. So if we move on, well, that sort of leads us into the first paper that we were going to touch upon, which is the the Mark Coventry Award. And that's a multi-centre prospective randomized controlled trial. And it's sort of a reasonably topical sort of area looking at the use of smartphone-based care pat- platform after a primary, partial and total knee arthroplasty. And sort of, I suppose, topical in terms of the fact that people are looking more at these sort of technology to sort of maybe improve the experience post-operatively, reduce the burden on the healthcare system. But I, I suppose as well with the pandemic we've just been through, trying to reduce the number of visits people have to do to, to healthcare centers. So a really interesting study in many ways.
2: Yeah. I mean, and, and how timely was it, right? I mean, I don't, they started this study well before we had any idea that we we're going to be in the middle of a pandemic for a year. Mm. But I, I think what, you know, what you're going to see is just this we're on the cusp of this explosion of this kind of what we call this remote patient monitoring, you know, whether it's through smartwatches or sensors or where, where ultimately we're going to have less patient touches in person. And yet we still see the importance of being able to monitor these patients closely. And that's really what, you know, this study was looking at. Can, can, can our patients recover and improve with less physical touches with, you know, devices that will be able to track how they do after surgery that will compare to what our standard treatment was. And so I think, you know, it was a good message, right? It's not necessarily demonstrating that it's the end all be all that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but I think in certainly a good, a certain subset of patients for them to be able to do therapy on their own, to have it be based in kind of this smart technology platforms. I think it's going to be, you know, I think what we're going to see over the next probably Five years or so is really a revolutionary change in how we're managing these patients afterwards, and I think that was just on the cusp of this.
0: No, I, I agree, and I think you're seeing it, like say, in all walks of surgery, whether it's sort of photographs for monitoring wounds or trying to pick up wound infections. There's there's lots of ways the technology is now being used, and I think the the, the badness of the pandemic, the good thing that's come out of it is maybe you're going to be forcing us to do these these sort of things and look into it more. You any any thoughts on that that paper, Prof? Uh, or, or very similar.
1: Well, very similar. You know, great topical idea. You know, I love the fact that they thought of this. You know, methodologically, this isn't an earth-shattering paper. There are a number of holes you could blow through it. But in terms of innovative thinking and moving things forward, you know, what a wonderful idea! And that's where we are all going. It's going to get better and better from that perspective. And you know what? This is a, a real example. This would not have been a randomized study five years ago. What what we've done in orthopedics is we've started to push the standard towards more and more level one data. You don't always need level one data and you can't always get level one data, but actually we've encouraged and pushed people to do randomized studies. And the more randomized studies are done in North America, the better they will get. So yeah. uh, re- really pleased
0: to see that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So if we if we move on to the the second prize paper, Brian, that was from Houston, uh, and that was a, a, a retrospective re- review of just over a thousand patients who underwent primary TKA, and they were reporting on the incidence of infection and adverse reaction and complications. And what they were comparing was either IV versus intraosseous vancomycin, I thought this, this was quite interesting, and again, uh, topical and maybe um, has similar sort of applications that we, or studies that we've seen in, in other aspects of orthopedics. And they were looking at a sort of outcomes of 30 days, 90 days and one year, and some interesting results there, wasn't there?
2: Yeah, this has become a really interesting topic, and not only in the primary world, but also in the infection world, you'll see in the, in the supplement, there's another paper that looks at intraosseous vancomycin delivery for treating infections. Very early data, but potentially some you know, some promise there. And this all gets back to the, this concept of how do we deliver high enough local concentrations to the site of surgery without creating systemic toxicity, which is the issue we run into with giving a lot of these patients intravenous vancomycin and other antibiotics, et cetera. And this, this really builds on the work that Simon Young out of New Zealand has done, some of the basic science work, some of their preliminary work clinically- some of the work that um, Mark Spangel and his group out of Mayo Clinic, Arizona have done. And this just, this just continues to build on it. Uh, Ideally, I think a larger study prospective randomized is the way to truly show the benefit of this, right? Because there's, there's going to be some selection bias and some confounding issues that are, that are looked at whenever you look at any kind of retrospective infection study. But I think they demonstrated good safety you know, we we see in a lot of these patients where we're given intravenous antibiotics, it's not an insignificant amount of acute kidney injury in some of these patients. Yeah. And the nice thing about the intra delivery is they're going to get very high local concentrations. So it's very minimal systemic issues related to it. You know, and they did demonstrate at an early period, the you know, the 90-day mark, they had lower incidence of periprosthetic joint infection in that group. Interesting, the 30-day and the one-year weren't really... We know weren't really any different, but certainly that 90 day window that we're all focused on, you know, did show a difference. So I I think it's encouraging. I think what a lot of these papers are going to do is going to it's going to spawn future and bigger and better research on these topics. Right. So I think that's really one of the benefits of a paper like this as well. Yeah, no. It's it sort of it's
0: setting the scene and, and raising the question, isn't it? For like you say, a, a large, a large randomized uh, study in the area. I completely agree, and I think it's sort of interesting because it's it's slightly related, but you know there has been some big studies in trauma about topical vancomycin and also in spine surgery. And actually, getting that that antibiotic to where it needs to be and actually the effect it's it has is quite is quite interesting and certainly for for more research. Would Would you agree with that, Prof? Uh, from what you've seen before as well? Yeah, no. I,
1: I think the, the the reality is. These studies have such small numbers of the index events that they add to they add to the weight of the evidence and they add to the signal that they can't be the final answer. But if we have a number of different signals coming together like this, it will it will it will generate the big studies and the funding for the big studies to allow us to study this properly.
0: And that's right, isn't it? Because like you say, the 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 actual number of events is quite small, so you're gonna need such a big trial to do it, but it gives you that that weight to to, to do that trial, no. I agree. So if we move on to the the final award paper, Brian, if that's okay, the John Insull Award, and that was a large single-center study from the Rothman Orthopedic Institute, and that focused on the role of aspirin in the management of infrapopulacidial DVT following total knee arthroplasty. And uh, obviously, like a, a, again, a big retrospective study and sort of looking at the, the you know how we manage these uh, infrapopulacidial DVTs.
2: Yeah, I, I thought this was actually a very interesting study because, you know, clinically, this can be an issue you know, for us. And, you know, oftentimes a lot of centers still do a lot of screening for DVTs. You know, they do ultrasounds at discharge, even though may or may not be cost-effective. You know, and a lot of times we will pick up incidental infrapopliteal DVTs, you know, postoperatively in, in patients. And the gestalt answer has always been you got to treat it. You got to treat it. These patients have to go on powerful anticoagulants. And what this group has demonstrated in the past and, and the point they make in this paper is those are not benign treatments, right? And the, you know, the risk of having a, a major complication from an, you know, a pulmonary embolism from an intrapop, op, infra infra-popliteal DBT is relatively low. Mm. You know, you weigh that against the risk of giving someone powerful anticoagulation in the early post-operative, you know, period. And, and, and so I think it's a, it's an encouraging study. I, as, as Professor Dodd brought up in the study before this, you still have to be a little bit careful because even a study like this that seemingly has large numbers is still probably very underpowered when it comes to something like a DVT and probably in particular an infra- popliteal dvt so i I think the the association is nice definitive conclusion i have i still think we have to be a little bit careful about in a study like this but i'm glad they're looking at something like this because i think it could potentially be practice changing if we can build on this in larger numbers
0: yeah definitely a clinically relevant problem that would be useful to know the answer to Would would you agree with that prof
1: I agree completely. I mean, I think it's a problem that I was brought up to believe was benign and, you know, don't scream yeah. over knee because actually you're, you're looking for trouble. The, the the trouble is our hematologists are busy really looking for trouble <laughs> all, all the time. So actually having, having this kind of evidence and having other studies that support this will be important because we do not want to go, go out with the big guns in every knee replacement.
0: No, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I think that's a really nice cover of, of of the three award papers, and obviously we've we've mentioned a few others. Prof, did you have any other papers you particularly wanted to to highlight uh, from the supplement? These and there's we could talk about several, but uh, anything in particular?
1: So I think I think Brian summarised some excellent papers all the way through. I, I, I'd flagged one paper that really took my interest, which was Paul Lekevich's paper on the the early failure of a of a novel knee replacement. And this was really interesting in that this is a reputable centre who had a very high revision rate with, if you like, an upgrade of a very popular system worldwide from the PFC to the the Attune. And there's been signals from elsewhere about that, uh, but it hasn't been picked up quite so well in the registries. So we haven't really seen it in the registries yet. There are multiple people talking about it at meetings. There are a few little studies. Showing revision rates, and there are lots of descriptions of debonding, and even in the RSA studies that suggested that this implant was doing well early on, there were already more radiolucent lines. So I think there's an interesting signal there, and we that should lead us to ask some questions, particularly around you know, is there camouflage in the registries? Are these being lost amongst bigger numbers? Are they because they're radiolucent lines? It's a knee replacement. It might have some pain. Are we not picking these up early enough? And are we brewing a signal for later? And actually, the the big thing about this study for the reader is this component's been changed, but there has not been a recall. And that's, you know, when we look at responsible innovation in orthopedics, we've really got to be incredibly careful. So here's an implant that's been brought onto the market, and a signal has been spotted. These authors have really very bravely come out and published it. Uh, And yet the implant has been changed and we don't really have a clear mandate to review patients who have this implant in or know what to do about them. So lots of questions, really important questions from this paper. And again, a, a signal that we really have to be careful how we innovate.
0: You know, it's, like you say, it's a very it's a very frank and honest uh, assessment of their experience. And like you say, it's not it's not the biggest study, but, it, you know, it does make you want to it does raise that question, doesn't it? Which is the, the most important thing. Any thoughts on that as well, Brian, at all?
2: I, I agree with everything you both said. I mean, I think, that, you know, in this day and age where it, it can be difficult to have honest reporting. I give a lot of credit to Paul and his crew for, you know, for pushing this through. And because in reality, it's it's good for our profession as a whole. It's good for the orthopedic community that if we see things that may be signals, we report on them and we report on them honestly. And Paul was one of the surgeons, you know, Sam Wellman was one of the surgeons. So they're very honestly reporting their, you know, their own results. And I and I give them a lot of credit for that.
0: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well I think that's all we have time for both but as as always uh, I really enjoyed that it was a, a it was a, a really uh, enjoyable discussion and uh, and congratulations on an excellent sub, supplement that I know will be of real interest to our readers so thank you Brian for joining us
2: thank you very much and thanks prof it's great to see you
1: thanks andrew and thanks again Brian it's been a great 3 years of doing the supplement with you uh, we will miss you
2: oh the pleasure's been all mine thank you for having me
0: Thanks very much both. So to to our listeners we do hope you've really enjoyed joining us and uh, feel free to post or tweet about anything we've discussed here today. Thanks again for listening everyone and take care.